You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. In him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he will be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace. By the blood of the cross, him we proclaim. And just just an FYI, if you're like, what are we going to do about the hurt? You know, besides ride it out, because that's what we do here. Um, if, if if there's some kind of change to something or groups or whatever, just, just the website slash email will be where we kind of keep uh, social media, Instagram, Facebook, those things. So kind of, you know, gravitate to those. Sometimes we send out emails and it gets sent to your spam. And so you're like, why didn't you tell us? And we're like, we did, just check your spam. So, uh, so check the website if you're like, oh, are we gonna, what are we gonna do next Sunday? And, you know, sometimes when these things happen, we lose a ton of volunteers because you guys are just like, well, might as well go to Athens anyway to see the game, you know? And so we're down like 50,000 people in the nurseries, and so we really are like, well, what are we gonna do? So just keep, you know, kind of posted to that, and we'll pray that, I know the schools are gonna get out because that's just what they do. It's like, you know, they cancel before it's like a month out, so I mean, um, so anyway. um, Turn to Colossians chapter one, if you have a Bible. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat pockets in front of you. We began this book a few weeks ago, so if you're visiting new, uh, one of the things we do is we primarily work through books of the Bible, and so we started this this letter to the Colossian church. If you don't know where that is in your Bible, it's okay. Open the table of contents. It's, you can find it. It's in the second, third, really. Uh, one of the uh, letters to, of the churches that Paul wrote. One of the things that I've been living in the South now for really a majority of my life and, and love it. I mean, there's a, I have a couple issues. Obviously, hurricanes, that's one of, one of the issues. Um, although we've been you know, fortunate the last couple of years. Number two, the drivers, which I don't even wanna get into because that's just a whole nother world that doesn't need to be explored at this time. Um, and, and one of my third biggest knocks on, on living in the South uh, is that you cannot, for the life of you, I don't care what you say, you're not gonna convince me otherwise, you cannot get a good Philly cheesesteak in the South. It just doesn't happen. Um, if you're like, well, Steakums, no, please leave. That's not even, that's not even American. Um, there are several rules when it comes to cheesesteaks, all of which are necessary. Call them the four commandments. It's, you have the big 10 commandments, and then you have the four commandments of the cheesesteak. And then you cannot meet all four of them in, in, in the South. All right, so rule number one is, uh, just so you know, this is important. You might want to write this down. Um, <laughs> Rule number one is you gotta use real ribeye. You don't use anything else. Anything else doesn't count. Uh, It's just, you know, meat. So it's gotta be ribeye. That's rule number one. Rule number two, cheese is not optional on a cheesesteak. That's thus the name. And there's only three types of cheese that are approved, just so you know. 
This is a very important piece. Number one, you're allowed to have American cheese. Number two, you're allowed to use provolone cheese. Number three, you're allowed to use cheese Whiz. Those are the only three cheeses allowed. Uh, other, everything else, you say, what about Swiss? Swiss is made for mice and sandwiches. It's not a count, it does not count, all right? So that, that is very important, all right? Number three, you are encouraged highly, although not required, but highly encouraged to use onions on your cheesesteak. And when you ask for them, you say, I, I want it wit, W-I-T, wit onions or wit out, all right? This is the appropriate way. Uh, you, if you say, I want them with onions, we won't understand what you're saying. Language is very important. And number four, and this is, this is probably the reason you can't get a good cheesesteak in the South. The bread is everything. All right. It, it can, first of all, it has to be Italian hoagie made by angry Italian women. <laughs> I don't know what it is about the South. You cannot get the bread right. Yes, we can get ribeye. We can get American cheese. We can get cheese whiz. We can get onions. But we cannot get the bread right. I don't know if it's something in the water. I don't know if it's angry uh, Italian women, I grew up with all my friends, their last names were Angelucci and Calabretti and, and Scansella and all that. And, and these moms could make bread and meatballs like nothing else. There's something about the bread. These are the four commandments. That's your application. Let's pray and we'll go, all right? All right? Uh, that's the real deal. Anything else is a counterfeit. You can get three of the four, you can get two of the four, but it's not the real deal. You've been sold a bill of goods. The Colossians had been sold a bill of goods by some of the false teachers. They were teaching or offering a Jesus that had two-thirds of the truth or three-quarters of the truth, but didn't have the whole truth. And it was a corruption of who Jesus is. And so if you remember, again, Paul, as he writes this letter, he's sitting in prison in Rome, Epaphras the man who planted this church shows up and says, hey, things are great, but there's these false teachers and they're, they're telling people that they can use Swiss cheese on the cheesesteak. And Paul says, no, you cannot. And so he writes this letter in essence to show them, no, no, this is the real Jesus. And what you are being sold is a, is a bill of goods. And the idea is to draw them back to the real Christ, the real Messiah, because anything less is a corruption and it's a fraud. Right? And it, look, the same thing is happening in the church today. It has been for 2,000 years. It's 2,000 years ago, same attack. Say, you go back 4,000 years before that to Adam and Eve. What does Satan do? He attacks who God is and what he's done. It's not a new thing, right? And so what we're gonna see this morning is what's the real Jesus? Because we in America, especially the last 50 years, last 50 years, because of the ignorance or the ignoring, so to speak, of the humanity of Jesus for so long, there's now the pendulum has swung and there's been this overemphasis on the humanity of Jesus. And when, we lose, when, when the pendulum swings too far between humanity and deity, we lose something. And so you have all sorts of images or pictures of Jesus, just like this one. I mean, this guy just went to Woodstock. Okay, but this is, this is a Jesus that some people have in mind, right? He, he's, he's hippie, Jesus. Or you have, if you were a Baptist in the 70s, you had this in your fellowship hall. I mean, it's still in them. There's wood paneling, there's old casseroles, and there's this picture of Jesus. And notice he's got blue eyes as if anybody from the Middle East, right? Uh, but, okay, he's the blonde-haired, blue-eyed American Jesus, right? And then if you're a Catholic or a Notre Dame fan, you have touchdown Jesus. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, so, but we've created 
this idea of who Jesus is, what he is, what he looks like, what he's, what he's like, and what we wanna do as followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus, Christians, little Christs, we wanna know the real thing, right? What it, we, we looked last week when we talked about growth in Colossians chapter one, that one of the sides of growth is what? Increasing in the knowledge of God that Paul prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And part of that is knowing Jesus. This, this, this text that we're gonna look at, Colossians 1, verses 15, really, to, I'll unpack 20, we'll read 20 to 23 when we kind of celebrate the table. It's probably the most famous text in this book. I mean, when people think Colossians, they think this text. It's an early Christian hymn or poem. It was used probably. That's why you see the text type is a little different. It looks like poetry. Um, it's what this book is known for. Right? And, and there's not one command in it. There's not a go do, go be, go die. So this, it's, it's what's challenging because we're used to me, me or others saying, okay, here's the application. There is gonna be some application, but this is a, a primarily a, a knowledge-based deal that you would increase in the knowledge of God. Here's why. Because what you think about God, this is what Tozer says, it's, I think he's right. What you think about God is the most important thing about a man and a woman. Because it, it determines your existence. It determines the rest of your life. So if you think God, when you, when you think about God, what do you think about? You think about a disengaged dude. You're gonna be disengaged. If you think he's angry, that's what you think. You're gonna be always walking on eggshells. If you think he's disinterested, he's, you're gonna be disinterested. If you think he's just like this superstitious thing we bring him out, then only when we need him, when it's a good luck charm. And so... What comes to mind when we think about Jesus is important. So I'm hoping to give you a picture of, of what scripture teaches, at least in this little portion of the real thing, so you're not deceived, all right? So I'm gonna give you five big picture things. Just a little, this is not the, the milk of the word here. This is a little bit of the meat. So you're gonna have to kind of like, some of you are there, you're gonna have to think a little bit, but I promise I'm gonna do my best as your PE teacher and resident to keep it on the lower shelves, okay? Uh, so we grasp the big picture. Verse 15 of chapter one. Here's how he starts. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the Greek word icon. It's a word that means he has the likeness that he reveals, that he represents. And so the earlier on in, in Jesus's life, uh, there was this episode with the Pharisees and they say, hey, should we pay taxes? He says, let me see a quarter. Whose image is this? It's that same word. Whose likeness is this? And they say it's Caesar. It's the likeness of Caesar. Caesar put his face on everything. Billboard on everything with Caesar's face. The idea was this represents Caesar, this coin. This is what he's like. Jesus is the visible image of, what does it say? Notice, God is invisible. Right? This, is what, this is what scripture constantly teach, that God is invisible. First Timothy, that he is immortal, he is invisible. Jesus says, uh, God is spirit. You wanna worship him? You gotta worship in spirit and in truth. First John 4 says, no one has ever seen God. But Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of what God is and what he's like. And we are, in some ways, as people, made in God's image, because some people say, well, aren't we in the image of God? Yes, we are, but not perfectly and not essentially. There are certain things about us being made in God's image that we share with God. And, and theologians call these the communicable attributes. You'll forget that, but some of you are like, ooh, I remember that from something. 
and you're like, yeah, I'm excited. Communicable attributes means there's things that because we're made in God's image, we are like him. So for instance, the ability to love, um, the ability to be kind and gentle, um, wisdom, mercy, the, having a personality, a conscience. These are those attributes that we share with God. But then there's these things called the incommunicable attributes, the things we do not share with God, like eternality, like immutability. That means got the unchangeableness, right? We change all the time, all right? Not just change clothes, but last week we were fans of this team, this week we're fans of this team. This week, last week I like green beans, this week I don't like green beans. I never like green beans, so I'm immutable in that. But, uh, but we change, God never changes. God is omniscient. That word means he's all-knowing. He is omnipotent, that word means all-powerful. He is omnipresent, that means he's present everywhere. See, we don't share that. There's only one who ever lived on the earth who shares the, the personality and, and in all areas, essentially, uh, just equally and perfectly, that is Jesus of Nazareth, right? He is the image of God, John 1, 18. No one has ever seen, the, seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one's ever seen God, but yet Jesus has made him known. Why? Here's the first point. First thing to get about the real Jesus, what Paul is trying to get us to say, and this is probably the most obvious to us, is that Jesus himself is God. Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus himself is God. You've seen him, you've seen God. Remember the night he's betrayed, he's up in the upper room with the disciples. Philip asks a question. And, and, you know, we've always said, well, there's no stupid question. Jesus basically says, Philip, that's a stupid question. Because he says, Jesus, all this talk, we're talking about the Father, we're talking about this. just show us the Father. Can you show us the Father, please? That'll be enough. Just please show us the Father. And, and Jesus says, Philip, that's a dumb question. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How long, how long have I been with you? You don't know this? You've seen me, you've seen the Father, Right? Because he is the exact imprint. He is himself God. And the older, the older I get, the more, it's kind of scary to me, the more I, I see in the mirror or I see a video of me or a picture and I'm like, man, I'm starting to look like my dad, which is super scary. Because I'm like, that's what my dad looks like at 70. That's me in 20 years. That's scary. Or 25 years. How old am I? 45, yeah. But you, I cannot say to you, you've seen me, You've seen Tom Fowler. I can't say that. Because I'm, I'm, I'm looking more like him, but I can't say that you've seen me, you've seen Tom Fowler. Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He himself is God, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal from all eternity with the Father. It's a big piece, right? Here's the second thing. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn, the prototokos, is the Greek word, of all creation. Now this is where it gets a little wonky, right? Because when we hear firstborn, what we think is, you're the oldest. I'm the oldest, I'm the firstborn. I'm the firstborn of two, right? My dad's the firstborn of five. 
And that is one use of the scripture of, of that word. But there is another use, and here's where, the, here's where it gets challenging. Some of the cults have taken that word firstborn, and they said, see, Jesus is important, but he still was created. He had a beginning, right? He was like the first one born, and then everyone else was born. But that is not what the, the point of the text is. If that was the case, then Paul would be agreeing with the false teachers, not to mention, if he is the first created, then when you go down one verse, you can look in your, in your Bible, in verse 16, it says, all things were created by him. Well, if he was created, how can he, all things have been created by him? But what some of the cults do, the Jehovah's Witness specifically, they take, in their version of the Bible, which is called the New World Translation, they take that verse and they add a word. You know what word they add? Other. So it says not that all other things were created by him. That's convenient. Although it's, it's not in there. Why? Because that fits their theology that Jesus was first created, not, uh, not God himself. And so what's the point? What is first born then, if it doesn't mean chronologically oldest, what does it mean? Is there, there's another use of the word in the scripture where it talks about supremeness or rank, not chronological, but rank. The most important, and so if you have the New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase, but it's a good one, this is how it, it, it puts it, and I, I kinda actually like this. It says, he, Jesus, existed before anything was created and is supreme. That's the idea, that he is supreme, that he is the highest, right? Like, a, you know, you think about like a supreme pizza, what does that mean? It's got everything, just And what, what Paul is saying is Jesus has everything. He is God and he is supreme, right? And this is the way this word firstborn, if you're like, well, does this ever use like that firstborn in the scripture? It's used a lot of times. Let me just give you a few, right? And so in Exodus four, God is talking to Moses. He says, you go to Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. Well, they're not the first nation ever created. And they weren't even the first in that kind of promise. You had Abraham, and then Isaac, but remember Isaac was Abraham's second born, not his firstborn. his firstborn was called Ishmael. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the oldest, the firstborn. Jacob was the youngest. And Jacob is the one whose name was changed to Israel. So he couldn't have been first in order. It was the idea of he has priority. He is higher in rank, right? This is my chosen son, Israel. It's, it's special to me. And Jeremiah, it says, I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim was like the second born son of Joseph. He was like the 10th born son. But in this, in this passage, he's saying they're, they're special. They're, they're, they're superior. Messiah, the Psalm says, I will make him the firstborn. He wasn't the first king. You had Saul, you had David, you had Solomon, you had Jeroboam and Rehoboam and Hezekiah and all these kings but he is the highest, he is the firstborn. And the idea, what Paul is saying is, Jesus is God and Jesus is supreme. That is the real Jesus. He is numero uno in all the universe. And there is no number two, I don't know, number dos, numero dos. There's one who is supreme and everybody else, there's nothing else. It's like the, the theologian uh, Mr. Miyagi says, Daniel, two, two rules of Miyagi-Do karate. Rule number one, karate for defense only. Rule number two, first learn rule number one. Jesus is God, he is supreme. 
There is no other rule. That's it. Know that he is the highest one. He is God. And why is he the highest one? Why is he supreme? Verse 16, go back to the text. For, see that word for? It explains. For, by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for, through him and for him. What's he saying? Jesus is supreme because third thing, Jesus is creator. All right, so when you, in the, in you read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What, what the New Testament reveals is that the agent through which God created was through the second person of the triune God, Jesus. That he is the agent and he is the source of creation. He doesn't get a lot of press in Genesis 1. It's because the kind of the doctrine of the Trinity uh, was revealed through time. The three persons co-equal, fully God, each distinct, but yet one God. It's a mystery, yes, uh, but it's what scripture teaches. That Jesus is the one, when it, when it said, let there be light, that was Jesus. The one who scooped out the oceans and, and piled up the mountains and threw the stars into existence, it was Jesus. He checked the, the, the label on everything ever made. It doesn't say made in China. It says made by Jesus. Everything. John 1, 3. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Pretty clear. It's not just Paul. It's just John. Everything that was made, there was nothing that was ever made that was not made by Jesus. And think about the, the vastness of everything that was made. I mean, we see here and we're like, oh, look at the oceans and look at the, you know. The, yeah. Think about the, va- do you know how big the universe is? I mean, do you know how just large, I mean, you can get in your Millennium Falcon if you got one and you can go light speed and you can make the Kessel run, right? And it, it's so vast and big and it is Jesus who made it. I uh, showed this picture in first service this picture was taken by the Hubble telescope um, a couple of years ago. And it actually is not just one picture. It is actually 2,000 different pictures taken. What they did is they pointed the Hubble telescope in this one little section of this, of this one constellation. And then I had a, a real smart guy after service come up to me. He said, I know all about that. And it's actually, I'm gonna get the number wrong. He said they pointed it in one out of 300, I mean 13 millionth of the sky. So if you break the whole sky into 13 million pieces, they put it into one of those at this little, this little section in this little constellation. And they left it open, this camera, and they took 2,000 images over like, uh, what is it, I wrote it down, 500 hours, right? And this is what they saw after 2,000 images in one, one out of 13 millionth of the sky on just this hemisphere, right? This is what they saw. Every single one of these dots, oh, that actually worked this time. Every single one of these dots is a galaxy. Every one, a galaxy, not like a star, is a galaxy. All right, do you know how many stars are in the Milky Way? 
They don't actually know, but they have an estimate. I, I can estimate this, that 1.5 billion. Well, that's a good, that's a, yeah, a good round number. 1.5 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, which is where we are at, by the way. We're in one little solar system with one star called the sun. I don't know if there's another name for it. We call it the sun, right? And there's like nine or eight planets, depending on if you're born in the 70s when Pluto was a planet, all right? I don't know if it still is or not. It's every week it changes. That's what, that, and you know, you know how long it, it takes like, I don't know, I mean, I've seen all the movies. If, if you're gonna go to Mars, it takes a couple months. I mean, if you get on a spaceship and go to Mars, I think it takes like six months. I don't know, no one's ever been there. Matt Damon was in the movies, but that doesn't count. I mean, that's just one, that's the next planet. If you wanted to go to Pluto, years, 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 years. If some of these galaxies are literally hundreds of billions of light years away. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because I wanna go see Star Wars this afternoon, maybe. But more so because this, this the vastness of the creation was spoken in a moment by Jesus. That's how powerful and mighty and grand he is, right? He, for by him all things are created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. And that, so the things you see, but also things you can't see. And that, what that's talking about is those things in the spirit realm. So when it says thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, these are the angelic realms, Good angels, bad angels, demons, Satan himself, all things were created by him. And that means all things submit to him. So when you see the demons coming up to Jesus, what happens every time? They're like cowering. Don't, don't cast us out before the time. Why? Because he created them. He has authority over them, right? All things created. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. These last days, he has spoken to us how by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through him whom he created the world. He's the creator, he's the source, he's the agent. But not only is he there at the beginning, and he's there at the end. He says all things were created through him and for him, and, and the literal Greek word here is, is this word ace, which means to or towards, but it doesn't make good English. All things are created through him and to him. So we kind of make it an explanatory, which is, which is the idea. But the point is, everything began in him, and it's all going to his feet. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He is the point. He is the goal. Everything exists. Why? For him. Which means what? Take that to, to you. Why do you exist? You're for him. It's not, you, don't, you weren't created for a job, although there's nothing wrong with a job. You weren't created to make money, although that's fine. You weren't created to eat, watch football, get married, go work out. Those are all fine things and you might do them. You were created with a goal and that point ultimately is, is Jesus' glory, right? He created it. It's all heading back to him. He is before all things, right? He tells the Pharisees before Abraham was, or he's talking about Abraham as if he knows him. Like, how do you know Abraham? You're like 30. He's like, before Abraham was, I am, and they wanna kill him. He is before all things. He is at the end of all things, and guess who's in the middle? 
He's in the middle holding all things together. The reason the earth is just far enough from the sun that we don't freeze, but not too close that we don't just fry like bacon is because he sustains all things. Right now, he is sustaining. He is the one, as one writer said, who's keeping the, the cosmos from becoming a chaos. And, and, and not just the vastness of the stars and the galaxies, even at the microscopic subatomic level, which is way over my P teacher pay grade. But I was reading this week and read a bunch of articles and read a bunch of science blogs and, 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 uh, and probably gonna get this wrong. So all the chemistry and biology teachers and physics teachers are gonna come up and be like, well, it's this and that. But let me give you the big picture. Apparently there's these things called atoms, right? I don't remember them much because they didn't teach about that in kickball class. But these things called atoms are very small and you cannot see them. But inside the atom is this thing called a nucleus. And nucleus have these things called protons in them. Protons are positively charged, thus the word pro. Right? I got that part. All right, now, this is where my expertise kind of, I'm way already past my expertise, let's be honest. But apparently, protons when, uh, supposedly repel each other because they're positively charged. And I'm like, I don't get that. And so but think about a magnet. Remember magnets? If you get two magnets and you try to put the two positive ends and it's like, ooh, that's kind of cool. It feels something in there. It just rubs right off. But if you flip that magnet around, the positive side of the negative side, what happens? Boop, and they attach. But you can't get the positives to, run, to go together. Inside a nucleus of an atom, you have protons who are positively charged and they should be bumping off each other, and when an atom, when the nucleus splits and an atom splits, bad things happen. But something keeps these protons from splitting the nucleus. And so, and, and scientists apparently, up to like some of the journals that I read, and they are not interesting, by the way, but... <laughs> They, they, they create, they, they said what keeps these things together is they, they named it. They call it the strong force or the stronger force, which I think it's funny in light of Star Wars, the force holds things together. I don't know. But they don't know what it is, so they give it a name. And maybe one day we'll find out it's quarks or perks or jerks or whatever. I don't know, some name that they go. And we'll understand it. But for, for us with a biblical worldview, Maybe God has created something in that to do that. But in the end, what we believe is that the reason it, it happens is because Jesus sustains it, even at the subatomic level, right? Because he holds all things together, right? And if that's true of the vast universe, y'all, that's true of you and your family and your life and your job and your work, isn't it? But let's go. The real Jesus. He is God. He is supreme. He is creator. Verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Right? He's the, he's the head. Right? And, and it, Paul has many metaphors in the scripture for the church. Right? It's a house. It's a family. It's an army. It's a bride. But one of his favorite metaphors is the body. Because the body is made up of many parts. You got your hand, you got your ear, you got your toenail, you got your armpit, you got your spleen. Some of you are an armpit, some of you are a spleen. Some of you are a toenail, right? But there's only one head and his name is Jesus. And you can live without a hand, right? You can live without a spleen, apparently. I don't even know what it does. You can live without tonsils, apparently, and, and appendixes, but you cannot live without a head. There's no head, there's no life. Jesus is the life 
of the church. And when they hear that he is the head of the church, they're going to gravitate to one main idea, that Jesus is the authority. And the next thing you need to know about the real Jesus, he is creator, he is supreme, he is God, and as those, he has authority over his church, right? Why does he have authority? Because he gives life, but also because he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that word firstborn. Same idea, though. Not chronological, but supreme. Because he wasn't the first one to be raised from the dead, was he? Lazarus. Couple other folks by him. Elijah raises someone from the dead in the Old Testament. But he is the firstborn from the dead who will never die and he lives forevermore. Lazarus died again, didn't he? Stinks for him. Twice he got to get sick and die. Right? But he raised and forevermore lives. And so, Revelation, when Jesus speaks, he says, Fear not, I am the first, I am the last, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the death to key, the keys to death in Hades, which is not a Ferrari. The idea is I have the keys to get you out of death in Hades. I give life to my church. Why? Because I died and I rose forevermore. So Jesus has authority because he is the one who gives the church life. He answers the biggest question that all religions have to answer. He's the only one that gets it right, though. How do you deal with evil and how do you deal with death? This is the two biggies. Right? And so you can say, well, it's karma or it's this or it's that. Jesus says, here's how I deal with, with evil. I die for it. Here's how I deal with death. I am resurrected for it. He answers the biggest questions we have. How do you solve the death problem? He does through his death and his resurrection. So he has authority over the church. He has authority because the next verse says, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Fullness, the idea of this word means to be completely full. There's nothing about God that is lacking in Jesus. And he, and it, he dwells among us. And there's this, there's this great picture in the Old Testament when, when Solomon builds this temple to God. You remember this story of some of you who grew up in Sunday school? Solomon builds this temple and it is vast and beautiful and it's gold and all this. And they kill a sacrifice like a thousand oxen and it's just this scene They've been wandering around the wilderness for years in a tabernacle and finally they have a steady place. And, it, and when they do this, the glory of God falls on the temple and, so, and the smoke is so thick that the, the priests kind of got like run away because the glory of God is in this temple. And yet Solomon responds. He says, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How, how much less this house that I built? He's saying this, this house is the nicest thing on the earth at the time, and it can't contain you. How can you dwell? How can God, who is vast and creator and supreme, dwell on the earth? Jesus is that answer, right? Jesus is that answer. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, John 1:14. And because he did, he has authority in his church. Here's the real Jesus. He is God. He is creator. He is supreme. He has authority and he is the reconciler. Right? Which means there's something that needs to be reconciled. Something's wrong. So there's a scene in the, uh, I was thinking about this last night. I put it in my notes. I don't know why. Maybe not. But there's a scene in the office, the last season, 
when Kevin Malone, who is an accountant, for those of you know, if you don't know the office, then just you can put your head down for a minute. But this, Kevin's an accountant and he's supposed to reconcile numbers, right? So the numbers are supposed to add up. But if something doesn't add up, so what Kevin does is he writes his little mark for a, a magic number he created called a McLevin. And so he had this little saying, a mistake plus a McLevin gets you home by seven, right? Because so if it didn't make sense, he just puts his little number there and it, it all makes sense. He reconciled it, fixed it. Although it really didn't fix it because he got fired. Jesus saw the problem of sin and brokenness. This world is broken, y'all. There's a hurricane, a five hurricane. Wind, destruction, there's death, there's sickness, there's pain. Not just for us, creation groans, Romans 8 says. Longs for the day when the curse of sin is lifted. Every little snake, every little nice, well-meaning lady who goes outside and sees a little garden snake and kills it first and then puts it on Facebook and says, was this poisonous? No, he's just trying to take care of your mouse problem and you killed him, right? There's, there's, I heard a story on the radio the other day. This lady went to the doctor. She heard this sound in her ear. And there was a spider in her ear, which is like a nightmare for some of you. There'll be no more spiders in ears. Garter snakes cut in two. Hurricanes. Those are all a result of the fall of sin. And Jesus, he made peace. He reconciled. He fixed it. Not through a McLevin, through the blood of his cross. All things, notice that, through him to reconcile all things. That word all is repeated constantly through this text. All things. He created all things, all things through him, for him. I mean, it's just all, 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 all. He's going to restore it all. He's gonna wipe away every tear. The creation is gonna be restored. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And it was all made possible by he who reconciled. How did he make reconcile? He died as a substitute in your place for the punishment your sin deserves the blood of his cross. And it was all him. He was the initiator. You didn't seek him, he sought you. Right? He is the reconciler. What you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you because it will determine your life. He is God, he is creator, he is supreme, he is authority, he is the reconciler. Let me give you some thoughts and we'll move to worship. Because I know this is very, I know this is kind of theological, I get that. That's the nature of the text. The text dictates our sermons, not vice versa. So this is moderately informational. We are growing in the knowledge of God, so that's a piece of it. But I, w- I do wanna give you some thoughts as we move to worship, and maybe one of these lands with you some more than others. But here, here's four, four words, and maybe one's more than important to you. I'm not gonna put them on the screen, I'm just gonna give them to you. Number one word, I think this is the most important, is love. What should your response be to a God who is this vast and powerful and mighty and yet he leaves heaven where he is worshiped and glorified at all times. He takes on human, humanity. He adds, as the one theologian says, he adds humanity to his deity. He becomes a man, lives a perfect life, and instead of being worshiped, he is scorned. Instead of being sung to and, and praised, he is rejected. Instead of being honored, he is killed. Instead of being considered holy, he is considered sin. He literally becomes sin on my behalf. Right? How do you respond to a God like that? 
Why would he do that? I mean, again, this is the God who is majestic and mighty. He's not touchdown Jesus. He's not hippie Jesus. He's not blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. He is God, creator, sustainer, mighty. And he loved you so much that he died for you. Would you do that for your enemy? I wouldn't. I mean, think about the worst person ever. Again, we go to Hitler, Mussolini, Tom Brady. These are the worst people, right? <laughs> Would you die for one of them? For Nick Saban, would you die? <laughs> no. You were an enemy of God and he died for you. And the response is we love him because he first loved us. What is the greatest commandment? Don't not go to church, not give your money, not read your Bible. Love God with your whole heart. And why would you not? And what are you gonna replace him with? I mean, what, what is mightier and greater than this, this God? This is why all the idols, we sung about it earlier, that we don't, that we don't wanna worship false gods. Right? You're gonna worship, if you're a Tennessee fan this morning, you're having a hard time, I know, I feel your pain. Georgia State, baby, all right? That's a bad God. The Tennessee Volunteers is a bad God. But so is anything else other than Jesus. That's the point. And so I'd encourage us, man, in light of this, let's love God with our whole hearts. Second word, purpose. You have a God who says you are created for me, which means you have a point. You are not aimless, you are not worthless, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have the race that you should be, you are the height you should be, you have the bald spot you should have. You have the job, and and and. Because you were created for him, you have a point. You are valuable. Hey, we need to start seeing that, that Monday morning matters because of who God is. You're like, well, I'm just dropping kids off at carpool and filling cereal bowls. That is worship. Because God, you are created for God. And, and this is why just a couple chapters from now, we're gonna see Colossians 3, verse 16, uh, or, or excuse me, verse 23, that whatever you do, that, that's, a, that's a blanket statement. Teach Western Civ, attend Western Civ, change diapers, fly airplanes, build buildings, whatever. Whatever you do in word or deed, that's how you speak, that's what you do. Do all things the glory of Christ. <laughs> Why? Because it's for him. And so tomorrow morning matters. How you talk to your spouse matters. How you drive on Truman on the way home matters. It matters because you're made in his image and you are ultimately made for him. It's worship. It's just as much worship as taking uh, and singing a song that we're gonna sing because, it's, because you're made for him. We need to start seeing it that way. Purpose. And so this is why the, the whole idea of, of an atheistic worldview or a out of the you know, goo into the zoo, that became you. I mean, that's hopeless, y'all. That's pointless. I'm just random? I'm just a random thing? No, you have a point. You have a point. You have a purpose. It's to glorify God in your body. Third word, follow. You could use the word Obey. If Jesus is God and creator and authority and all these things, then you don't get to pick and choose what you obey. Do you? No, I mean, 
Not if he's who he says he is. Not if he's all the, the power and the might that it says. And, and here's the thing. Paul is not asking in this passage, will you follow? The point is not will you, it's when will you? When it's your choice or his? Because he is a ruler over all thrones, dominions, authorities, powers, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. The question is, when will you do that? Then or now willingly? What does the father say to the son and to all listening at his baptism? Remember that great scene? The dove comes down, the Holy Spirit and the dove, and he says, this is my son, my beloved son, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Follow him. The church, y'all, does not get to pick and choose what we like about what Jesus says. We can't say, well, I like that whole cup of water to someone in Jesus' name, but I don't like what Jesus says on sexual purity. I don't like what he says about marriage. I don't like what he says about my money. You don't get to pick and choose. If he's God, we put ourselves under God, period. And you see this in the church. We pick and choose. Well, I like this. Well, this is not what it really what he meant. That's, that's not, remember we talked about earlier, the fake you get the real cheesesteak and the fake, that, that's not the real Jesus. You don't get to pick and choose. He is either all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth or it's not. The question is, when will you follow him, right? He is not, and, and you don't come to him like, like a, it's not a contract. Well, Jesus, I'll go to church and I'll read my Bible and then you do this. You give me all these things. You get my house, you get my kids, you get my this. He's it's not a contract. He is not your butler. He is your God worthy of worship and obedience some of us are blowing them off. Some of us are, are not listening. And the last word is this, is trust. If he can hold together your atoms and your nucleuses or nuclei or whatever it is, and he can spin the universe in billions of light years and the red spot on Jupiter and Pluto as a planet, or not, if he can do all that, can Jesus take care of your job, no matter how much you make or how much you like it or not, can he handle your singleness right now or your, your infertility? Can you trust him with those things? Can you trust him as a widow or a widower, even though that's painful? Can you trust him in the chaos of, of, of work, the uncertainty of an economy? Right, of who's gonna be mayor, governor, senator, who he is are gonna ordain, ordain as president. Can you trust him with your past and your junk and your mess that you've done? The answer is you can, right? You can. That's the point of the passage, the next verse, that you were once alienated, you were an enemy, you were hostile, and he reconciled you. If he can do all that, you can trust him. You can love him. Your life has purpose and you certainly wanna follow him. We're gonna worship, respond in worship. Um, and just, I want you to be encouraged about who God is. And I want that to, uh, I want you to understand who he is so we know him better. And we're gonna celebrate through the table uh, one of the ways that Jesus gave us to remember him. So if you've been asked to serve uh, the table, I'd ask you gotta kind of move to the back now. And we're gonna, well, we're, this is the way we're gonna celebrate it today. Uh, the praise team's gonna come back up and lead us in one, uh, just one song. And uh, they're gonna pass out the elements. Hold them in your hands. Don't, don't take them yet. Sometimes we do it that way. We just kind of, when you're ready, we're gonna take them together as a church. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, man, we invite you to celebrate. And if you haven't, what we would say is, hey, Jesus loves you. He brought you here to hear about his great love for you and how he paid the penalty of your sin, that he died and rose again, this great God. And we would encourage you to think about the offer of, of salvation that he offers to you through faith. So we're gonna sing. However you wanna respond to this song, you can sing along, you can just listen to the words. And then I'll come back up in just a few minutes and I'll lead us in the uh, taking of the table together as a church. Let me pray. Father, I just ask that you would use this time to um, let us reflect on the real Jesus. He, it, it, there's such a, so much a mystery of, the, uh, of how great, we, don't, we don't, can't fathom it, but we see what scripture says and you are God, you are creator and sustainer, you are the authority of us, your church, you are the reconciler of us to yourself, even though we're the ones who ran. And so I just pray that we would know you more Uh, increase in the knowledge of who you are and that we would appreciate what you have done for us and that while we're sinners, you died, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.